if the audio sounds a little bit differently, that's because Mina is in Japan. <laughs> Why are you in a foreign country this week? Uh, well, I'm in Japan to attend Ruby KU this week. I was very generously offered by WNB.RB, by Emily and Gemma, the organizers, to come as an attendee. Nice. And what is Ruby Kaigi? I think it is colloquially referred to as Max's home conference. It's essentially a Ruby conference that is, that is held in Japan, different part of Japan, every year. The creator of Ruby, the language, opens. And I learned today that the in-person tickets for this year's conference was just sold out today. And there will be about 1,200 Rubyists descending upon Matsumoto City tomorrow. Nice. And how are you going to get there? Because you're in Tokyo right now. I am in Tokyo right now. I'm going to be getting on a bullet train. With a bunch of other Rubyists, right? Cookpad is very generously sponsoring. Basically, they bought out a full train car on two separate trains, one at 8 a.m. and one at 3 p.m. And they're going to put a bunch of Rubyists on rails. <laughs> That's very silly, but it makes me happy. <laughs> Welcome to the Tightly Coupled Book Club. I'm Aji, joined by my mermaid-haired half, Mina. Hello. For this episode, we read Active Record Basics in the Ruby on Rails guides. Hey, Mina, did you learn anything that surprised you? What surprised me this time around was that Active Record was really considered to cover all of the model layer of Rails, where I thought of Active Record only as the part that queries and modifies your database. It actually also includes migrations and validations for your models and callbacks. So I think that I didn't think of Active Record as so all-encompassing. And reading this chapter expanded on your understanding of your favorite part of Rails? It is my favorite part of Rails. I have had this dream that I want to uh, contribute code to Active Record at some point. Now, since it includes all of the model layer of Rails, it really expanded on the part of the code base that I can contribute to and <laughs> call this dream fulfilled. Nice. So uh, I want to do something right here. I want to uh, challenge you. You can yes, no, counter offer. In the future, when you talk about contributing to Rails, contributing to Active Record, can you say a word other than dream? So it is your goal. I want you to use a word that is more concrete because I want you to change your internalization about this to something that is achievable. And I want you to change your mindset. Okay. Challenge accepted, I guess. All right. Yep. <laughs> uh, except I can't really think of another word that really... We well, don't have to have the word right now. Just uh, kind of reframe your mindset there because that is something that is absolutely achievable. I don't think that has to be a dream at all. And if you can shift your internal mindset about it, then maybe the steps that you will need to take will start to look achievable, which they absolutely are. Fair enough. Okay. Taking my team lead hat off now and we can get back to the reading. <laughs> so, Active Record, what is it? Well, like we were just talking about, when the Rails documentation talks about Active Record, it really uses that word to create an umbrella over everything on the model layer, right? all of your database-backed entities and the way that they get initialized, they get validated, the way that all of your data get read and changed falls under that umbrella. It's the M in MVC. Correct. And it talks about in the guide at the very beginning that it is the M in MVC, literally the opening sentence of this page that we read for this episode, that it talks about it is an implementation of the active record pattern, which is a description of an ORM system. I'm not familiar with this active record that they're referring to. I don't know if you are, Aji. No, I've never read a description of this pattern specifically. Uh, they mentioned where it comes from, uh, Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture by Martin Fowler. That made it onto my to-read jobby job bookshelf, but I don't get through that shelf very quickly, so uh, we'll see. Did you have any familiarity with this before uh, reading this page? I knew that it existed. I think that at one point I had accidentally landed on the Wikipedia page for the active record pattern when Googling something about Rails active records. I took a look and said, oh, this is interesting that they're named the same, but this is not what I'm looking for and got out of there. Yeah, the answer you're looking for probably not on Wikipedia. Yeah, the pattern was not it. Well, Aji, since neither of us really have a previous and deeper knowledge of the active record pattern that this model layer in Rails is modeled after, 
it does kind of give you a summary of what this pattern is. In the guides, it says that in Active Record, objects carry both persistent data and the behavior that operates on that data. Do you have any interpretation as to sort of what that means in Aji terms? <laughs> in Aji terms? Uh, yeah, in your own words. In my own words. That maps really closely with how I uh, conceptualize Active Record in general. It creates these objects that have both its persistence logic, all abstracted away by Active Record, thank you very much, and a lot of the business logic that goes along with that. That's another one of those uh, Rails kind of aphorisms, right, of skinny controller fat model, uh, to put a lot of logic and behavior into the model file and to err on the side of putting logic into your model objects. And so because I learned Rails first at my bootcamp, that is sort of intrinsically how I think about models. There are probably plenty of other patterns that don't work that way, but that's kind of my go-to now. What part is your go-to? That the object or class that will be called to persist to a database is also the object or class that holds a lot of behavior around changing or interacting with that data specifically. So everything about some object essentially lives in the model class. Um, yeah. As you were just explaining your sort of interpretation of the definition of the active record pattern, where you were like, in the same sentence, said active record twice and once meant the pattern and the other time meant the Rails model layer. And I made a note while I was reading this first chapter, and I'm guessing like these first few sections. Are they referring to the pattern here? Are they referring to Rails here? You know, Wikipedia disambiguation link on every time they use the word. In addition to being an implementation of the active record pattern, it also says that the active record pattern is a description of an object relational mapping system. What is your understanding of an ORM body? It's the, either like the wrapper around or the system that talks to the database, does the querying, getting the information out of there and turning it into an object that can be acted upon in the rest of the application. I always think of ORMs as basically the, I think naively, the syntax with which you interact with your database. Is that simplifying it maybe a little too much? Well, that syntax comes from the ORM, right? That's the part that you interact with as you're writing application code, so it does scan. Yeah. And that's maybe, as an app developer, really the only part that, not the only part, maybe the most important part that I care about, because I'm sure there's more to it. Yeah, of course, but in true Railsy fashion, that gets all abstracted away for us, and we don't need to generally interact with the, the database at a lower level. Always exceptions, of course. Sometimes you do have to drop down into that raw SQL layer, but as my SQL skills are, <laughs> also my Postgres skills, no, my SQL, SQL structured query language skills, are either rusty or have never been really tested because of active record. Uh, I don't think my dropping into the SQL layer would. Most of the time, probably make things harder. Yeah, exactly. Another way to think about Active Record and ORMs is essentially allowing us to write Ruby code in the ORM, turning it into database understandable SQL. It basically lets us handle all the database operations without writing SQL statements directly most of the time. And I am forever grateful. Well, you don't want to write all SQL? Not, well, you know, honestly, I don't know uh, what kind of enjoyment or not I would get out of writing SQL because I don't really do it. Much like I am grateful for the pattern of Active Record and of MVC existing before I got here as a programmer, uh, because I am not cut out to be a trailblazer. I am very grateful that there are folks that have dedicated the time and put in the effort so that I can come along, stand on the shoulders of giants, and and use the thing, you know, to get my work done to find value for my clients. For sure. So you're basically what you're saying is thinking Martin Feller. At all. One of the other developers on ThoughtBar recently had given or taken a workshop in SQL. I can't really remember which. And 
came away with the realization that he really enjoys sequel for its similarity to putting together a Lego structure where you're taking disparate pieces and putting them together to create something bigger. And I think that that describes a lot of what I like about building an active record query. It fulfills the sort of same part of, I don't know, my brain. That really resonates with me. I love putting together an active record query because, like you said, there are these building blocks, the tools, the methods that you can call. And what's nice about this, as opposed to a lot of the other creative challenges that we have to tackle day to day, is that there is a right answer, right? You can put these pieces together and the computer will tell you right away if you got the data that you wanted in the kind of looking shape that you wanted. It has a very quick response as to whether you you got it or not, as opposed to sometimes you might never know if the larger decisions that you made have been, quote unquote, the right choice because it works, but there's no further feedback or information around that. It's very mathy in a sense. And I think maybe the lack of ambiguity is what I enjoy about these challenges. Speaking of challenges, this is part that always trips me up. We do get introduced here to active record naming conventions. Uh, there's a little table here and a couple of lines that I think boils it down that model classes are singular and they're in Pascal case and database tables are plural and snake case. Reading over that part, a thought struck me in that I always assumed that plural table names is really just a database thing. Is that not true? Can you insert a table into a database bypass rails altogether that is not plural? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any kind of programmatic control over that. I learned a little while ago, someone at work is on a project that has a, oh shoot, I want to say it's, I want to say it's a MySQL database that you can have spaces in the table names and that really threw them for a loop. Whoa, how does the Rails application handle that? Good question. They do, in this intro to Active Record page, offer a few different examples of how you might get around the conventions to point at a different database table or... Use a different uh, foreign key? Yeah, exactly. There you go. Thank you. The, I think was, that was the other example. I've definitely seen both of those things done in production application. And I do remember one instance where we wanted to use a different unique identifier as the foreign key. And it truly, really don't work against Rails. You're just going to have a bad time. Don't work <laughs> against Rails. No, I will amend that. Don't work against Rails unless you have a good reason to. Because you're going to have a bad time. One of the reasons that they put in the guides here that you might need to break out of that is when you're interacting with a legacy database that already existed with its own conventions before you came along with Rails. And I felt that pain before. I've had to connect to Oracle databases that had very different naming structure and schemes, and the patterns are internally consistent. They all made sense, and I could understand why they built it out that way, but Rails just had no idea what was going on, and there was a lot of extra configuration. And we like convention over configuration. <laughs> <laughs> I'm truly, really impressed by the fact that Rails can do complex pluralizations. Basically, you can have a class mouse that Rails will know it's referring to a database table called mice, a class person mapped to a database table of people. But the example that they gave in the guides that bothers me is that you have a model class deer, like D-E-E-R, the animal, and the table and schema that Rails will look for is deers. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, maybe the reason for that is there needs to be a separate identifier in the code, right? And so these words that map to the same word when they're plural, deer and sheep, they, they might need to have that differentiation. That's a really good point. I read these words in the guides and I have these like feelings and then we come here and we talk about it and I'm just like, yes, of course there's a code reason. Now I also want somebody to create an application where it makes sense to have a moose model and I want to know what Rails expects that table in the database to be called. I'd really like to see what Rails does with uh, Attorney General. Does it look correctly for the table of Attorneys General? Probably not because it does talk about like model classes with multiple words. 
right? You talk about mm. it having to be in camel case. So like the example that they gave was book club and the database table will be in snake case book clubs. So my guess is it's going to be attorney generals. Right after the naming convention section was something that sort of surprised me along the line of having feelings about things, not really thinking about the, the code relation or anything logical as I'm reading things, listening to what's bubbling up in my brain. They mention some special columns that will add extra behavior to your active record models simply by existing. And they list them out here. And a few are really familiar to me, like created at, updated at, timestamps get used all the time. I'm always working with them. And so they didn't stand out to me as special column names. But just by having a created at or updated at column, whether you create it yourself or use t.timestamps in a migration, Rails is going to have that behavior of stamping that object when it's been created, when it's been updated. Some of the other ones here are type or association name underscore type that are used with single table inheritance or polymorphic associations. And this little group of column names just never stood out to me as like special column names. Like that concept was sort of a new one. And even though I've used a lot of these columns before, it was interesting to kind of reframe it and think of it that way. Talked about this a little bit in prepping for recording the episode. I'm still kind of shocked to hear you say that. Is it the idea of thinking them as quote special column names? That is the surprising part because later on in that section, it describes them as reserved keywords, which is maybe how we understand type, for example. Right. You can't just name a column type. I think that's what the section is saying, right? It's by simply existing, having a column type, Rails is going to assume that this model or this table is part of a single table inheritance hierarchy. I think you're right. The thing that was surprising to me is this sort of reframe or conceptualization of these columns as being special behavior adders. And there were a couple here that I didn't know about, like lock version. Have you ever used lock version? No, I still don't understand what that means. Rails will save an integer to that column and increment it every time that record is updated, preventing someone that is trying to modify that data but has the wrong lock version from updating with stale data as their base. Okay, so let me see if I finally understand this. There is a version number that is associated with any record on a table that has a lock version column. So what then this lock version number will do is, let's say you are operating on a client that is hitting an API. I am operating on a separate client that is interacting with the same API. And we both queried for the user Dottie. I make a change to it. I commit that change to the database. Now, Dottie's lock version has been incremented by one. Let's say you maybe wanted to delete Dottie from the database altogether. I have updated it. The lock version has incremented from back when you queried for Dottie. Now you want to go in and delete Dottie with a lock version that isn't the same as it is in the database now. And what that would do is that operation will fail because you have an old version. Uh, for everybody out there, Dottie is one of our dogs who often finds her way into test or example data. That's, that's fair. Yeah, exactly. Protect operating on data without having the most up-to-date information. So now my question is, why don't people use this more often? And why is this the first time either of us have heard of this special column? Um, two questions that I don't know how to answer. <laughs> Obviously, we're not going to know the motivations of the entire population of Rails developers. So why do you think that lock version is little known and also not used often? Maybe that answers itself. It might be that it's it's little known, but I also think the use case is not particularly universal. It would help in there, but it's not the same as preventing race conditions or something like that. Maybe I'm wrong, but in my mind, the use case for lock version that we just described is more probable 
than say we both tried to commit to the database at the exact same moment. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, the motivation for us starting this podcast and for starting to read every word that's written in the Ruby on Rails guide is to uncover things that we didn't know existed. And so my theory after formulating that question was that we didn't know about it is because people don't use it. And the reason people don't use it is because most people don't know about it. Yeah, I think that's really true for a lot of the stuff that we're going to come across. But even after looking at what this lock version column can do, I'm still not sure that I would go run and put this on all of the tables in, in my current application. I'm not sure that this is a use case for anything that we have right now in the system. I think that's fair. Most tables are not going to need that kind of protection. One example that I maybe am thinking of is sort of records that are finance related. Those feel important to keep as consistent as you can. Maybe something like lock version would give it an extra layer of data integrity. As you were kind of describing financial situation examples sort of popped into my head is if you're going to be approving someone for a loan and their credit score is too low when you pull up their page, but then they have done something that improves their credit or like the latest poll hasn't happened. And so that gets updated to the database that they actually are now in the approval range and you would hit deny uh, on your screen because that's the data that you have that would prevent their status from being updated to denied uh, when their credit score is now currently good enough. That's an excellent example. Thank you. There is a table name underscore count column that you can add to your tables where you would replace table name with the name of the table that holds an association where it will cache the number of associations that any given record has. That seems to me a better way than querying for all of the associations and then running a count on the collection. Now it's my turn to do the reframe to make sure that I've understood. This would be if you have something like users who have many messages, and let's say message has the, the foreign key, so it has user ID. On the user table, you would have messages underscore count, and every time a new message was made with the particular user ID, that column would get updated on that user. So you'd have a kind of running count of the number of messages the user has sent. You would have a running count of the number of messages that user has sent. I don't know if the assumption about how that works is accurate, that every time an associated message is created, that that column gets incremented. I've never used it because I had never heard of it before. <laughs> I've just been over here like a schmuck querying for all the messages and then dot counting off of it. Well, at least that translates into, because the database knows how to count, so that turns into SQL that counts. So there's at least that. Don't feel too bad. I guess. But now you know. You can just put a column there and Rails will just do it for you. Another thing that either I had forgotten or I just never used is creating an active record object with a block. So that is, instead of passing in a hash of the attributes that you want to make, you can give it a block and uh, set attributes and things in there. And I was wondering, first of all, have, have you ever used that kind of object creation? If I have, I don't remember. And uh, as I was reading through that usage of the create method, I was trying to think of the reasons why you would pass it a block of code instead of a hash of attributes. And the only thing I can think of is if you need it to perform calculations on some piece of data before saving it as the value of an attribute. And thinking back to sort of the experiences I've had doing that, we've always done the calculation before trying to pass that value in as an attribute and still use the hash argument for things I create. Yeah, I'd say that's been my experience as well. Off the top of my head, I can't come up with a use case for block instead of hash other than maybe personal preference or code style. So I actually want to make a call out to the listeners. If you have used the create with a block for a particular reason uh, over instantiating with a hash, uh, we would love to hear your use case. We want to know about how you've used these because maybe we are missing out on some 
some functionality that could be helpful to us, and that way we can all learn together. I want to also extend that to our conversation about lock version. So if you have a particular uh, use case where lock version has come in really handy, we would love to hear about it. I feel like that sort of call out to everybody out there is something that's going to come up more and more as we get into the kind of utilitarian part of the guides that aren't so conceptual, that are showing us methods or ways to do something in your system. So I hadn't thought of that as being something that we would do pretty often, but now I'm actually pretty excited and looking forward to hearing from the Ruby and Rails community and how they use this framework so we can get at maybe some of the functionality or features that not only we didn't know about, but aren't even explicitly in the guides, but could be super useful for all of us. So one of the interesting things about this page is that it is this overview, right? It's Active Record Basics. And a lot of the sections here are a quick introduction and then a link to another section of the guide where it's going to go more in depth. Those sections that ended in that little teaser were the query interface, the validations, callbacks, and migration. So I'm pretty excited to get onto those next pages in the weeks ahead. Yeah, same. It felt like this page that we just read gave a lot of examples for ways that we're sort of familiar with using Active Record to read from, to update, to create. And it's basically like, here's Active Record, here are some examples, so you're correct in thinking that this is syntax to interact with your data. But oh, just kidding, Active Record also is model validations and callbacks. And, oh, database migrations as well. It was kind of like, oh, you understand ActiveRecord this way. And here are the examples that confirms that. And actually, ActiveRecord is much bigger than you thought. So let's wrap up, huh? Yeah. So for the next episode, we are going to be reading ActiveRecord Migrations, Chapters 1, Migration Overview, through Chapter 4, Running Migrations in the Rails Guide. If you have feedback, constructive compliments, or interesting use cases, we can be reached on Twitter at underscore tightly coupled and on Mastodon at tightly coupled at ruby.social or email us at tightlycoupled.dev at gmail.com. Show notes for this episode can be found in your podcast player or at tightlycoupled.dev. Bye, everybody. Bye. Welcome to the Tightly Coupled Book Club. I'm Aji, joined by my mermaid-haired half, Mina. Hello. Ooh. That was weird compression. Can you say that again? Hello. 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 You pick one. <laughs> nice. I think we found a funny thing yep. at the end. Um, <laughs> why are you the worst? Uh, okay, here.